0: Today is May 23rd. Clyde Barrow and his companion, Bonnie Parker, were shot to death by officers in an ambush near Salis Bienville Parish, Louisiana, on May 23rd, 1934, after one of the most colorful and spectacular manhunts the nation has seen up to that time. Barrow was suspected of numerous killings and was wanted for murder, robbery, and state charges of kidnapping. The FBI, then called the Bureau of Investigation, became interested in Barrow and his paramour late... In December 1932, through a singular bit of evidence, a Ford automobile, which had been stolen in Pahuska, Oklahoma, was found abandoned near Jackson, Michigan in September of that year. At Pahuska, it was learned that another Ford car had been abandoned there, which had been stolen in Illinois. A search of this car revealed that it had been occupied by a man and a woman, indicated by abandoned articles therein. In this car was found a prescription bottle which led special agents to a drugstore in Nagadoches, Texas, where investigation disclosed the woman for whom the prescription had been filled with was Clyde Barrow's aunt. Further investigation revealed that the woman who obtained the prescription had been recently visited by Clyde Barrow, Bonnie Parker, and Clyde's brother, L.C. Barrow. It was also learned that these three were driving a Ford car identified as one stolen in Illinois. It was further shown that Elsie Barrow had secured the empty prescription bottle from a son of the woman who had originally obtained it. On May 20, 1933, the U.S. commissioner at Dallas, Texas, issued a warrant against Clyde Barrow and Bonnie Parker, charging them with the interstate transportation from Dallas to Oklahoma of the automobile stolen in Illinois. The FBI then started its hunt for this elusive pair. On April 1, 1934, Bonnie and Clyde encountered two young highway patrolmen near Grapevine, Texas. Before the officers could draw their guns, they were shot. On April 6, 1934, a constable at Miami, Oklahoma, fell mortally wounded by Bonnie and Clyde, who also abducted a police chief whom they wounded. The FBI had jurisdiction solely on the charge of transporting a stolen automobile, although the activities of the Bureau agents were vigorous and ceaseless. Every clue was followed, wanted notices, furnishing fingerprints, photograph description, "'Criminal record and other data were distributed to all officers. "'The agents followed the trail through many states "'and into various haunts of the Barrow Gang, "'particularly Louisiana. "'The association with Henry Methvin "'and the Methvin family of Louisiana "'was discovered by FBI agents, "'and they found that Bonnie and Clyde "'had been driving a car stolen in New Orleans. "'On April 13, 1934, an FBI agent, "'through an investigation in the vicinity of Ruston, Louisiana, "'obtained information which definitely placed Bonnie and Clyde "'in a remote section southwest of that community.' The home of the Methvins was not far away, and the agent learned of visits there by Bonnie and Clyde. Special agents in Texas had learned that Clyde and his companion had been traveling from Texas to Louisiana, sometimes accompanied by Harry Methvin. The FBI and local law enforcement authorities in Louisiana, Texas, concentrated on apprehending Bonnie and Clyde, whom they strongly believed to be in the area. It was learned that Bonnie and Clyde, with some of the Methmans, had staged a party at Black Lake, Louisiana on the night of May 21st, 1934, and were due to return to the area two days later. Before dawn on May 23rd, 1934, a posse composed of police officers from Louisiana, Texas, including Texas Ranger Frank Hammer, concealed themselves in bushes along the highway near sales louisiana in the early daylight bonnie and clyde appeared in an automobile when they attempted to drive away the officers opened fire bonnie and clyde were killed instantly john d rockefeller passed away today in 1937 he was born in upstate new york on a farm not far from Binghamton in the southern tier a landscape of hills that he dearly loved He was a descendant of Johann Peter Rockefeller, who arrived in North America from the German Palatite in 1723. J.D.R.'s father, William Avery Rockefeller, was a trader dealing in such commodities as salt and timber. He married Eliza Davison in 1830, and John Davison Rockefeller was the couple's second child and eldest son. By the time he was a teenager, J.D.R. had moved with his family to Cleveland, Ohio, where he was baptized at Erie Street Baptist Church. He began a business at the age of 16 as a clerk accountant for two Cleveland wholesale and shipping merchants. In 1858, JDR and a partner began their own company, and by 1863, Rockefeller entered the oil refinery business. Petroleum had been discovered in Pennsylvania only four years earlier, and Cleveland, one of the early centers of oil refining, was on the brink of vast industrial expansion. In March of 1864, Rockefeller married Laura Spellman, a young Cleveland woman with a strong political and religious background. Her parents were staunch abolitionists and active in the Underground Railroad. In 1884, Spellman Seminary in Atlanta for African American women was named in honor of her parents. JDR provided substantial financial support for the institution. By 1870, when Rockefeller and his partners incorporated themselves as a Standard Oil company, the refinery was producing more than 1,500 barrels of kerosene a day, destined for street and indoor lamps all over the country. Even before gasoline engines opened up the completely new and almost limitless demand for refined petroleum, Standard Oil and its competitors supplied a huge market. At the end of the decade, Standard Oil had bought out or merged with 22 of its 25 Cleveland competitors, and it merged... And it produced thirty three million of the thirty six million barrels of oil then produced in the United States. By eighteen eighty four, when JDR moved to New York City, Standard Oil was well on its way to becoming one of the largest corporations of its day, and he was soon to become one of the wealthiest men in the world. Throughout, he remained a deeply religious man, worshipping all his life within the Baptist faith in which he had been reared. His mother, who was favorite motto was willful waste makes woeful want, Instilled in her son a veneration for work and a profound sense of charitable obligation. Charity was an essential part of JDR's life from his youth. A strong religious impulse underlay and always informed his giving. Even when the affairs of Standard Oil demanded nearly his full attention, JDR spent more and more time on philanthropy. By his death in 1937, at the age of 97, he had given over half of his fortune to various philanthropic programs among them the university of chicago which he principally funded and the rockefeller institute for medical research now rockefeller university founded in 1901 in new york city the institute's program of attacking the most serious diseases of mankind gave jdr his first experience funding directly the long-term work of academically trained scientists and physicians in 1913 senior set up his greatest philanthropic endeavor, the Rockefeller Foundation, to promote the well-being and to advance the civilization of the peoples of the United States and of foreign lands in the acquisition and dissemination of knowledge in the prevention and relief of human suffering and in the promotion of any and all elements of human progress. Today with an endowment in excess of $2 billion, the Rockefeller Foundation remains one of the ten largest foundations in the United States. William Kidd spent his last days on earth at Newgate-Gill, where on Sunday, May 18th of 1701, he heard his final sermon preached by the prison chaplain of the cheerful text for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Kidd still hoped for reprieve, and the others who had been condemned with him for piracy received it, all except one, an Irishman named Darby Mullins. On the afternoon of May 23rd, they were taken with the two Frenchmen who were also to die from Newgate in two horse-drawn carriages guarded by marshals and led by the Admiralty Marshal and the silver ore, which is the Admiralty's symbol. To the Chapman's shocked disapproval, Kidd was the worst for drink. At five o'clock, low tide, they reached the execution dock at Wapping, a few yards below the Wapping Old Stairs in the presence of a large, lively crowd. There was a permanent gallows for pirates there, and after the hanging the corpses were customarily chained to a post on the foreshore where they were left until the three tides had flowed over them, as an example. Kidd spoke to the crowd, warning all shipmasters to learn from his fate. Then the four men were turned off, but Kidd's rope snapped, and he fell to the ground with a noose around his neck, still alive and dazed. The pestering chaplain prayed over him once more, and he was hoisted up again, and it was that, that was that. His body was taken to be hanged in chains at Tilbury Point. Kidd was in his mid-50s when he died. The line between piracy and government-sponsored privateering was narrow, and he does not seem to have been the typical swashbuckling pirate of popular fiction. He did not maroon anyone or make people walk the plank, but legends clustered around him, which turned him into a name to conjure with. As Scott, by birth, from Greenock on the Clyde, and according to tradition of the son of a Presbyterian minister, he emerges into history in 1689 as a buccaneer in the Caribbean. A doughty fighter, a fine seaman, and evidently a man of some presence, he turned into a privateer captain in British service, sent to pillage French settlements in the West Indies. He acquired a well-to-do wife and property in New York City. Kidd was in London in 1696 when he set off on the voyage that would be to his undoing. He left the Deptford in February and his ship Adventure Galley of 287 tons and 34 guns, probably a cross between a sailing ship and an oared galley, with a government commission to suppress pirates in the Indian Ocean. It took him almost a year to re- reach Madagascar in the East African coast, and he thought it would be more profitable to turn pirate himself. Hoisting the blood-red flag or French colors when it suited him, he captured several merchant ships in a furious rage. When his crew were on the verge of mutiny, he struck the ship's gunner. William Moore with an iron-bound bucket, laying him in his gore. As the popular ballad had it, Moore's skull was fractured and he died within 24 hours. In January 8, 1698, Kidd sees valuable ship of 400 tons, the Quiddah merchant, on her way from Bengal around the southern tip of India, carrying silk, muslin, calico, sugar, and opium. A substantial part of the cargo belonged to one of the Mughal Empire emperor courtiers and there were Armenian merchants on board. With What is now his own little flotilla, Kidd presently sailed for the West Indies, arriving in April of 1699, to discover that the government had proclaimed him a pirate. He left the Queda on the island of Hispaniola, where she was unloaded and subsequently burned. Bought a small ship called the Antonio and sailed to Boston, where he tried to convince the British governor, the Earl of Belmont, that he was innocent in the accusations against him. Belmont had him arrested and sent back to England, where on the 16th of April in 1700 it was recorded that the notorious pirate was examined before the Lords of Admiralty and committed to Newgate. Later in the month, rumor had it that jewels found on Kidd's ship had been valued at £30,000, probably equivalent to £10 million today. After further lengthy inquiries by the Admiralty on May 8th and 9th at the Old Bailey Kidd, was tried for the murder of Moore and on multiple counts of piracy and found guilty. Nine members of his crew were in the dock with him on piracy charges. Whether the evidence was convincing and the trial fair had been debated ever since. Kidd became a legendary figure largely because no one ever discovered what happened to the rest of his treasure, if there really was any more to be found. Its value multiplied as time went by, and treasure hunters have searched for his loot from the Americas to the South China Sea, but so far in vain. You have been listening to the This Happened Today in History podcast. I thank you for listening, and I hope that you have enjoyed learning about historical events from the past. Thank you to the following websites for their information regarding today's topics. ThePeopleHistory.com Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow at FBI.gov John D. Rockefeller at HudsonValley.org and Captain William Kidd at HistoryToday.com